It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our Rue Boudreau and out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. This is Our Tribe History, a regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland from 1901 and beyond. Here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Every ball player has, uh, sometime or other, has something special. You, you, you look and you see a lot of players that they have a wonderful year and then next year they don't have a good year. But it, uh, it just happened that 1920 was my good year. Hey Tribe fans, I'm Indians team historian Jeremy Fedor, and I'm looking forward to bringing you the story of the 1920 Cleveland Indians team. Now, uh, spoiler alert, they do win the World Series. Uh, The voice you just heard was former Tribe outfielder Elmer Smith. His interview is actually part of an oral history archive at the Cleveland Public Library. I hope to use these interviews to bring to life one of the greatest seasons in Indians history. And since this is the first podcast, I figure we probably start back at uh, square one. There's actually accounts of kids playing baseball in Cleveland dating back to the 1840s. There's an ordinance at this time that urged the young ones to uh, avoid damaging the trees that were on Cleveland's public square. But organized baseball in the city got started actually right after the Civil War with the formation of the Forest City Baseball Club. The club lasted for several years before folding in 1872. Now, seven years later, Cleveland returned as a member of the National League, though the club finished with a disappointing 22-55 record. Again, Cleveland's club folded and returned, this time in 1889, under the name the Cleveland Spiders. Now, if you know anything about the Cleveland Spiders, odds are it's the horrendous uh, and record-setting season of 1899 when the club lost 134 games. But the Spiders were actually mildly successful. They made two appearances in the Temple Cup, winning in 1895. And with a lot of the things that we're going to discuss, so many of these topics could be its own podcast, and hopefully in the future we're able to dive into them more, such as the 1895 Cleveland Spiders. Uh, But for now, we're just going to have to gloss over that and move on. But once again, the team folded, but it didn't take long to revive interest in the city. Cleveland was actually booming at the turn of the century. 
jumping to nearly 400,000 residents, and the boom would continue for nearly half of the 20th century before things took a turn for the worst. So it wasn't surprising that it was not long before another club made Cleveland home. So in comes Ban Johnson, who's actually a native of Norwalk, Ohio, and attended Marietta College. Now, he had a plan to take on the National League, and Cleveland had an opportunity to be part of this new American League. Johnson just needed to find the right people. Johnson actually didn't have to look any further than Ohio. With Charles W. Summers, a native of Newark, Ohio, the Summers family moved to Cleveland in 1884. His father founded the J.H. Summers Coal Company. And for Charles, he kind of took it from there, joining his father after finishing school. And soon, he broke out on his own. According to his biography on the Saver website, Summers was worth more than $1 million by the time he was 31 years old. When the two crossed paths, they hit it off right off the bat. Summers agreed to fund and take ownership of the Cleveland Club. He ended up saying in a newspaper article, I had always been a baseball enthusiast, and when there was an opening for a man to get into the game, someone directed Ban Johnson to me. With two other partners in Cleveland, we went into the baseball business by purchasing the Grand Rapids Club. My partners knew very little about the game, and I was forced to take an active part to protect our investment. Now, that Grand Rapids team was actually a team that was moved out of Michigan and to Cleveland. But Summers' involvement with Johnson doesn't stop there. Not only did he bankroll Cleveland, but Summers was the financial angel that Johnson was searching for. He was quoted as saying, At one time, I was interested financially in four of the eight clubs in the American League. I own the Cleveland franchise outright. At Philadelphia, Connie Mack and I were partners, with Connie running the club. At Boston, I owned the club and put Jimmy Collins in charge at a salary of 10000 for three years. To Charlie Comiskey of Chicago, I advanced some money to back his White Sox. So you could see that Summers was really what Ban Johnson needed to help get his American League off the ground. And once the ball got rolling, Cleveland was among the charter members of the American League. Uh, currently, they're still one of the four charter members that are active, with us, Chicago, Detroit, and Boston remaining. That 1901 season, the club kind of floundered around and really didn't find an identity until 1902, when perhaps the saving grace for Cleveland was the acquisition of Knapp Lajeway. And uh, th- there could be a whole podcast on Lajeway in terms of how he ended up coming to Cleveland. There was a contract dispute with Philadelphia's National League team. He wasn't allowed to be back in Pennsylvania until things got settled, so he'd miss road trips. And again, a, a more full-length uh exploration of Lajeway's time in Cleveland, just the impact he had uh, as for another day, but perhaps one of the greatest Indians uh, to ever play and really helped a team that was, you know, trying to find its identity in those early years. But with the acquisition of Lajeway, fans were excited again to watch baseball and Cleveland's league park came to life with the sounds of batted balls and cheering fans. And uh, I guess to, to backtrack a little bit too, League Park is going to play such a uh, a background in the story that we should probably touch on that a little bit too because it's still one of the greatest ballparks, I think, in baseball history. The first substantial and long-lasting ballpark in Cleveland. Before that, teams kind of bounced around. There were several ballparks uh, around the area, but nothing to the size and scope of League Park, which was built in 1891. And that first game featured another Ohio native, Cy Young, pitching against the Reds. Located at the intersection of Lexington Avenue and East 66, League Park shared many of the same characteristics of its contemporary ballparks. Uh, You can look at a map now. You can see how it's just kind of squeezed in a neighborhood. And that kind of caused it to have these unique characteristics. For example, 
balls hit to the short right field. It was only 290 feet to the wall. However, that wall was also 40 feet tall, comparison to Boston's Green Monster, which is 37 feet tall. Then you have center field, which had enough green space to ride a horse. It was 420 feet deep, which, you know, you don't really understand that until you stand out there and uh, kind of get a glimpse that if a ball goes over your head and rolls to that wall, it's an easy inside the park home run. And for fans that are you know, always longing for those demolished ballparks of the past, the Ebbets Fields, the Polo Grounds, League Park seems to kind of be a forgotten gem of that era. You know, there's not many photographs of the exterior of the original League Park um, before it was the concrete and steel version of it. Um, but there are a few images that remain. And there's this wonderful shot. And you probably Google it. You'll find it of the wooden structure that once stood behind home plate. And you can see all these neat Model T cars parked to the left with uh, dozens of men and women just milling about. They're all dressed to the nines, wearing their hats. But in 1910, the ballpark uh, wooden bones were swapped out for about 1,300 tons of structural steel, 1.5 million bricks, uh, 3,500 cubic yards of concrete, and uh, 1,000 feet of telegraph and telephone wire conduits. So Cleveland, again, was growing with the times. A lot of these ballparks of that era were making the switch from these fire hazards of wooden ballparks to the steel and concrete. In those first few seasons of Cleveland American League Baseball, the club toiled between third, fourth, fifth place uh, in the American League before a thrilling finish to the 1908 season that actually left the club a half game out of the World Series behind the Detroit Tigers. The pennant chase was it featured perhaps the greatest game ever pitched in Indians history. Eddie Joss ended up outdueling Chicago's Ed Walsh. Uh, the things could have been, you know, just the other way with uh, Walsh. His performance was just as great. He ended up fanning 15 naps, surrendering four hits in one run. Um, nevertheless, Eddie was perfect, and I think he threw somewhere around 75 pitches in a perfect game, which is just amazing when you think about it. And if you have a chance, there was a great documentary done on the life of Addie Joss that was out a couple of years ago. Uh, if you have a chance, go check it out. But that second place finish nearly wiped out manager and team namesake Nap Lajaway. And uh, during the 1909 season, he was pretty happy to relinquish those managerial duties. Not much happened then after that 1909 season to 1914 when Lajway left Cleveland. And uh, this was kind of a, a big turning point in the club's history. You know, again, never quite getting over that hump, um, always kind of milling about having good seasons, but not great seasons. And during these years, not only was uh, team owner Charlie Summers suffering from the on the field performance, but his personal life also suffered. He was so focused on the ball club that his first marriage fell apart in 1906, his wife alleging baseball as one of the culprits. She told the papers, My married life has been anything but happy for 10 years. During much of this time, I have been in ill health. Mr. Summers, I think, he sees his error now. I tried to bear it all, but it was too much. The news was all over the Cleveland papers. However, Summers was quick to remarry. It was actually within the next few months after his divorce, and the plain dealer of the time mentioned that the minister of the wedding was a huge Cleveland baseball fan, and you know whether or not they uh, chose him because of that, it hadn't been divulged. But nevertheless, it was news even in uh, the early 1900s. So not only did Summers have, uh, you know, baseball suffering. He also had uh, marital issues. And then came another big blow. 
1915, the newspaper headlines ran an article that said, Summers in distress. The man who financed the American League to success, now at the mercy of creditors to a vast amount. The Cleveland Club, not in danger. So Summers actually had amassed a debt of nearly $2 million. And this was the result of kind of a perfect storm of bad luck. Gate receipts were dwindling. Again, the team wasn't necessarily thriving. They couldn't get over that hump to get the first place finish and capture a pennant. But he also had some bad real estate dealings, in addition to a workers' strike in the coal empire, and that really caused his ownership to suffer. And then the next part is kind of one of the most uh, you know, heart-wrenching uh, issues of everything. Among the casualties through all these uh, financial problems is uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Now, again, from the casual fan, you don't really think of Shoeless Joe as a member of the Cleveland Club, but he actually got his career started with Cleveland. He played a little elsewhere beforehand. Um, and most fans remember him from the Black Sox scandal of 1919. He had been a member of the Cleveland Club since 1910 when Connie Mack sent him over for almost next to nothing. It's one of the greatest uh, transactions in Cleveland baseball history. And Jackson actually went on to set numerous franchise records for us, including an incredible 408 batting average in 1911. Now, mind you, that didn't win in the batting title. Ty Cobb actually finished with a 419 batting average. Nevertheless, you know, it's one of those marks that will never be reached again in Cleveland baseball history. But with a player of that talent, you know, Summers knew he could get a high price out of a player of Jackson's caliber. And to fans' dismay, on August 21st, 1915, the newspaper had the headline, Joe Jackson goes to the White Sox in baseball deal. The star outfielder was traded for 31000 in cash and players Ed Klepfer and Brago Roth, along with a player to be named later. And for Jackson, though, it was kind of a sigh of relief. He was actually quoted in the papers saying, I think I'm in a rut here in Cleveland and could play better ball somewhere else. Now, mind you, Jackson had never batted below 300, so what a rut for Jackson was is uh, kind of inconceivable. But he also said, I am perfectly satisfied. Why shouldn't I be? I am getting an advance even on the new contract I signed with Cleveland Monday, and I am also helping Charlie Summers out of some of his troubles. Charlie has treated me so splendidly since I came to Cleveland that I was willing to go anywhere he wanted to sell me. Then I stand a chance of getting into some sweet World Series money. Now, talk about irony there with Jackson talking about World Series money and what was still to come in his career. And also kind of swirled into all these rumors was a possible trade for Ray Chapman. Uh, There was an article mentioning Detroit had made an offer for him um, due to the bad uh, financial conditions of the club. Uh, Summers actually went on record and said, because of a bad financial year, I was forced to let Jackson go. Attendance has fallen off to such an extent that it was up to me to take some radical move to relieve the pressure. And this deal was the result. Now I can positively say that Chapman will remain. There is not a club in the league but would pay big money for Chapman, but he is going to stay. So again, one of those uh, great what-ifs of of baseball. What if Chapman had been traded and Jackson had stayed? You know, the course of baseball history would have been different by who knows how much. And Summers actually went on to say, I met with Chapman after the game today, and he appeared very much worried for fear I might trade him. No matter what some players think of Cleveland, Chapman is one player who likes the town and his treatment here and wants to stay here until his big league career has ended. So Jackson was gone. Chapman was still here. But again, by the end of the year, Charlie Summers was still in bad financial shape and the writing was on the wall. He needed to sell his share of the club. And this is where uh, James C. Dunn comes into the picture. 
Dunn was born on a farm near Marshallton, Iowa. And as a youth, he played on his local baseball team and eventually picked up an interest in engineering and construction work. As his career grew, he found himself in Chicago, where he formed the Dunn-McCarthy Construction Company. They specialized in railroad work. And, uh, you know, the story goes, Dunn had entertained the idea of owning a ball club. And, uh, you know, he had this chance. And, again, there's there's probably a, a larger discussion to be had here in terms of the backdoor dealings and Ban Johnson meeting with Dunn. And more or less, they had he, Dunn ended up heading the syndicate of, of Chicago, Iowa, and Cleveland men who uh, purchased the club from Summers in early 1916. So Cleveland had a, a new owner at the start of the season. Now, what Dunn ended up purchasing was kind of a team-lacking identity and really showing no signs of improvement. You know, since that high watermark of second place in 1908, the club finished third twice and in the last two years of the summer's ownership managed a record of 108 and 197. So again, things just really weren't going in the right direction. So in comes Dunn and, you know, he brings in this new energy, a fresh set of eyes, and he quickly goes on a record and lets the fans know we are going just as far as we can in strengthening the club. We're not going to rush helter-skelter into trouble right now before the training trip is underway, uh, meaning spring training. Now, two or three weeks from now, manager Full will know just about what he can expect from the men he has now under contract. If he feels that any spot is going to be weak, he will let us know and we will get busy and get the best we can from some of the other clubs, most of which are loaded up with two or three men for every position. There never was a time when it was easier to get players, and we do not intend to get worried just now. Now, little did Dunn nor even the fans of Cleveland know that he was about to pull off, perhaps at least I think, the biggest uh, trade in Cleveland Indians baseball history. Uh, But that's for next time. You've been listening to Our Tribe History with Indians team historian Jeremy Fedor. 